Change happens. How we respond to change can make or break us and our careers. Join us for an intimate insight into how senior business leaders face change. The good, the bad and everything in between. Because whether we like it or not, change happens. Hi, my name's Janelle McMaster and welcome to the Change Happens podcast. A conversation with influential leaders on leading through change and the lessons learned along the way. Today I'm joined by Cahill O'Rourke of Lang O'Rourke Australia. Following a succession of senior leadership roles in the UK and Australia, Cahill was appointed Managing Director of Lang O'Rourke's Australian Operations in October 2013 and is a member of the group's Executive Committee. Cahill has played an instrumental role in managing and delivering many significant building and infrastructure projects over his 15 years with this multinational construction company that, of course, bears his surname, including, quite notably, elements of the Heathrow Terminal 5 development. Now, during Cahill's time as Managing Director in Australia, this business has been twice named as one of the country's most innovative businesses and was the 2016 winner of the Australian Construction Achievement Award. In 2020, Lang O'Rourke was awarded the prestigious Workplace Gender Equality Agency's Employer of Choice for gender equality. Now, with the property and construction industry being hit by the impacts of COVID-19, and now as we are looking to beyond to be a key enabler for the recovery of the country, I look forward to exploring how Cahill goes about creating change, what it's like to be navigating a family business, and the lessons that he's learned along the way. Welcome, and how are you? Hi, Joe. I'm very well, thank you very much. Uh, yeah, pleased to be here chatting to you. Today is 11 years since I landed in Australia. Is that right? That day. So it, uh, yeah, it's amazing how time flies when you're having fun, as they say. It does creep yeah. up on you, and you've kept uh, your accent pretty strong, though, so I think you've got the best of both happening. I don't know. When I go back there, they seem to think that my accent's become Australian, and when I'm here, <laughs> I'm still seen as uh, sound like an Englishman. Tell me a bit about how, um, how COVID-19 has been impacting your business. Clearly, construction is an industry that um, has been able to keep working during the Mm -hmm. pandemic, but with a reduced workforce, um, adhering to social distancing, how have you been able to ensure the ongoing, uh, the continuity of your projects and maintaining all those norms, social distancing norms? Yeah, I think it's different across the sector. So I I think we're incredibly fortunate as an organisation and the infrastructure part of the sector that we've predominantly been able to keep going pretty well. I'd call out a few factors in that. Uh, First and foremost, I think our client bodies, predominantly uh, governments across states and also the, uh, the federal government, all worked pretty hard to try to get everybody to keep going. So that was, I think, a real big endorsement. Mm. I think the second thing that played out well for us, because of our industry and that we're used to operating with a with a level of regulation in how we go to work from a health and safety perspective, mm-hmm. that's the norm for us. So while this did bring in some extra areas to focus in on, we were able to ad- adopt those and adapt them very quickly to what we needed. And what it drove was a a lot of uh, collaboration with both the clients and the government agencies and the different players in the market where nothing was seen as a company specific. We were putting the best ideas into the industry to say, okay, how can we all keep going? Because this is what we need to do. And this is good for us as an industry and good for the country. So Mm. yeah, very fortunate. I'm interested in that word collaboration. We saw a lot of that happening during this period of time. Do you think that it has become an impetus for a new way of working the way we 
we would move forward or is it, you know, situational um, and we'd probably have to work much harder to make sure that that is something that becomes uh, embedded in ways of operating moving forward. What's your views on the sustainability of the levels of collaboration you saw over this period of time? Is it sustainable? Absolutely it is, but it's a choice and it's not an easy choice. I, I think we've seen some great outcomes by delivering in a collaborative way and what COVID did was take away some of the, the perceived barriers and cautions that sometimes stop us doing that. Yeah? Um, and the, the, the greater good and the bigger impetus was to keep going. And that drove great behaviours. Um, we, we have been working over the, well, we've, we're finished now, but we were working on the, uh, the bushfire recovery project, which was following the bushfires mm. last summer clearing all of those sites across uh, the whole of New South Wales. That was a project that started before, but again, the impetus was there and the collaboration between ourselves and the Department for Public Works as the, the agency, but broader government in truth, to actually get around it to make things happen. Uh, we saw some fantastic outcomes where we were able to engage with the local supply chain in a very different way that was more focused about what they needed than what traditionally our processes or government processes would need. Uh, that meant we could actually get people working a lot quicker. We could pay them really quickly, which again was the driver from government to make sure that the money that was going to be spent on this got into the communities affected really quickly. Mm. And we got to having, I think, somewhere in the region, 93 95% of all of the teams working on that particular project uh, being from the the local council area that the project, the specific house clearance site was, or in the adjacent ones. So it was a real direct impact onto the community that had been affected with, I guess, a recovery step that allowed them to get some upside in terms of being able to work and create um, returns for themselves, mm -hmm. but also done really quickly. When we want it and we focus on it, we can absolutely do that. Now, of course, we then were on that program of work in COVID hit. And it drove another level of collaboration because everybody had to come at it again. So on that specific project, we saw it double down. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm delighted that the, uh, the, the the team, the project team from the, the government department and also ourselves, we were awarded the Premier's Award for the uh, best uh, collaborative project delivery, I think it was. So, oh, congratulations. You know, it goes to show, yeah, we're really stoked that the, the whole team, because it was a whole team effort, really got that to work. So, so when I look at broader procurement and I look at broader models, we for many years have been looking to move to more collaborative forms of contract. Now, that can be a challenge because often in our industry and the perspective of it is quite a rough and tough industry and quite combative. Well, I, I think that's counterproductive and the opportunity to move to more collaboration where you can't just hide behind a contract. You've actually got to work together to get solutions to drive forward is absolutely the way forward. Uh, we've seen some great projects across the country and programs of works over the last few years that are really making that step change. And you know what? They're actually getting better outcomes as well. So mm. projects like the Level Crossing Removal Program in Victoria, really by picking their teams, working collaboratively, they're seeing over the, I think we're four or five years into that program of works, and we're actually seeing that the, the, the elemental cost is coming down, the time that these projects are being delivered is, is re reducing, 
And that has less impact on the local community that actually has to work through that infrastructure development phase. So many benefits that really can come about if you invest in that partnership. So we're, we're very, uh, very much on that agenda. And I see that the opportunity coming out of COVID is to push that more and more, especially as we move into a, a effectively a stimulus phase mm. of, in the construction and infrastructure markets. You've raised a couple of fascinating projects with the level crossing, I think with the Tidy Up New South Wales initiative that you won with that New South Wales government. You know, it, it strikes me that that must have been a daunting, like a, an exciting win of a contract, but a daunting one when you think about, well, I think about the geographical spread of New South Wales that you had to cover. And I think about the emotional, like the sensitivities of the local communities. I think about the um, Indigenous heritage areas that needed to be factored in. How did you even sort of set up the principles, ways of working? I mean, were you quite conscious about those kinds of things as you mobilised? Uh, so this would have been back at the back end of January this year. So mm-hmm. obviously people came back from the, through the fire season, came back into the new year, and then there was a bit of what, what's the government going to do and how is it going to address it? While, while that was unclear, I guess as an organisation, culturally we were you know, shocked by what's happening in our, in our broader community and we wanted to help. So we, we, we did a couple of things. We, we did the same as many organisations. We, we donated some funds respecting that this is we are part of the broader community so we've got to we've got to be part of how we help uh we also enabled our teams to volunteer time but there was a sense that the business could and would want to do something if it was allowed to so we did a bit of planning and preparation about what did we think we would be able to do mm-hmm. and for us it was very clear that the the impact on the 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 people affected it was so material that pace was a key thing and for, for our business, we're, we're very good at mobilising, we're very good at delivering, and we do that through trying to be as, as smart as we can be and using technology. So we did a bit of work thinking about how would we do this, and when we got the call from Public Works, were we interested in being part of the tender process? It was a, it was a really easy answer to say, yeah, absolutely, we, if we can, we'd love to help. Um, originally, it was planned as um, as three packages across the state, a northern, central and southern package. And we had uh, some quite extensive operations happening up in the, the northern part of New South Wales with the finalisation of the Pacific Highway. So we felt we knew that market really well. We knew the supply chain. We thought we could add a lot of value. But we were going to lead it with a, a technology-led approach, which was around how we'd track, trace and engage with the supply chain. So we, we pitched that forward for that first phase up in the north. And we said we could probably do a little bit more. But if you, if you want to do it in the timeframes you're talking, that's probably the max of our capacity. I happened to be heading to uh, to London for uh, some group meetings at the time and we submitted our bid and uh, by the time I got to London, I had a message from our team which was, um, we've got some good news and some bad news. The good news is that we're preferred and that government wants to work with us. The bad news is that they want you to take on the whole of the state. Wow. Um, so you're right. It was, a, it, was, <laughs> it was a deep intake of breath moment. And then we had to seriously say, well, could we do it? Because the worst outcome would be for our team to, to attempt, not achieve, and then we'd leave people who'd been impacted so much already hanging out. And that wasn't a good outcome for them, for government or for us. So we had to get confident that we could do it. We came up with a plan and then we executed the plan. And the, the beautiful thing for me was the feedback that we've had back from the individuals who our team connected with. 
we knew this program was going to take months. There were going to be the people who were going to be first, and sadly, somebody had to be last. And we had to weigh up the the benefits and of of which were the sequence that we would go through. Um, and we did that through working with the with an ethics committee to say, okay, how would we prioritise? Which was really helpful. So we gave the team the framework, and then they could engage with really extensive communication with each local community so that the expectations were managed. And then when we engage with everybody, it was very much on a personal one-to-one, this is your home, what do you want, and how do we best service your needs that allows you then to start rebuilding. Um, and there's some great stories. There was one where this this uh, this lady, her house had been lost, and the one thing that she was really looking for was her, her, um, her wedding rings, which were in the house. Now, the team had a, a, a magnet on the project with, a, with their excavator, and they just took the time to do a survey across the whole of the rubble and the burnt, the burnt remains before clearing. Now, we didn't actually find that wedding ring, but the fact that the, the team took the time and were considerate enough to do that gave this lady, at least she knew she'd tried everything she could, and uh, so much so that she actually wrote to me to comment on that. Aww. And then there was another gentleman, he had... Um, we were there to clear his property and he had a pizza oven which he'd built with his son and I think he thought that we had to clear the whole site and then he sheepishly asked well can we keep the pizza oven it you know survived the fire I said yeah absolutely and this this brought this individual down to, to breaking down in tears and all it was was just uh, by partnering to get to what what was the best outcome for them so there's lots and lots of little stories there that that play out and it was because everybody got dealt with individually and with sensitivity. So that's the most proud I get about my team for what they did in that in that uh, program of works. And there's no greater way, I think, to connect your staff, your employees, contractors to the cause than those kinds of stories. I think it connects the head to the heart and you, the discretionary effort, you know, to look for the rings, to, to save the, the pizza oven. It is is done with pleasure and pride when people can see that that homes are saved, memories are kept intact, and these stories will outlast, you know, the rubbles of ruins any day. Kale, I, I um just on the topic of kind of daunting tasks, um, you had to move, you know, fifty percent of your workforce to remote working, and I know that you had described that as daunting in the past. One measure yeah. that you adopted was to oh, adopted around building that trust and preventing anxiety with your employees was to introduce something called the no apology framework. <laughs> yeah. what, what was that? <laughs> <laughs> so the week before uh, we were we were having a workshop trying to promote a bit of flex and people being able to work from home and or wherever they wanted to accommodate a different sense of a lifestyle. The, the industry's reputation and its culture for a long time has been presenteeism, being on the site, being in the office and long days. So all of a sudden lockdown came. We moved everybody out of our offices pretty much so that we were all working from home. And what we tried to do on each of our project sites was get down to uh, at least 50% reduction. So the people who are in more administrative or site uh, office-based roles could work from home. And then what we needed to do is space out our workforce across the, the, the actual workplace. We were delighted to find that our IT infrastructure that we had, uh, it was already there ready to go. We had all the tools Mm -hmm. and it worked incredibly well. But you also had the other dynamics of people's lives. So they might not be the only one at home. They might have had a working partner. 
and also their children and homeschooling was coming in at that stage. So you had a lot of pressures on. And we were finding that people were, were, were struggling to reconcile that and feeling that they needed to keep this, this veneer of a, of, of a work professionalism, if you like. This was creating an, an added level of stress where we're trying to act as though everything's normal, where obviously everything is exceptional in this situation. Yeah. So what we did, we just came out with this policy that if you had, if you had a, a, one of your children or a partner or you know, children coming and looking for help with their homework or schooling or a dog barking or a cat jumping up on the table, that was just our new normal. And uh, we, we made it very public by saying, no apologies. So mm-hmm. if, if something happened, you, you weren't actually allowed to apologize for it. You just had to say it. Kick on with it. Let the noise go on the it background. It is what it is. Deal with it. It is what it is. Exactly. That because we 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 vocalised it, we 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 named it and we normalised it. Mm. It just took a load of pressure off of everybody that said, okay, well, if he's comfortable with it, then and the leadership team are comfortable with it, and I can get comfortable with it. And it just gave everybody a bit of a license to just accept that this is exceptional. It's different. And if uh, if you get distracted for five minutes, it's not the end of the world. And there's um, a remarkable level of relatability. Let's be honest. We've all got, you know, distractions, totally. laundry piling up, mess in the background. <laughs> well, I, I myself, I, I I never have mess in the background. Oh, it's always just off okay. camera. It's just <laughs> off camera. <laughs> I try not to not have it in view. If you could articulate the kind of change or changes you'd like to see and drive in the industry, what are those changes? Yeah, I, I think um, what, what we're looking to drive is a sustainable construction industry. So what I'm trying to do is get a sustainable business, working to actually come up with a way where we can drive a better industry for clients, companies, and also people in it. So We've got to look at our culture first and foremost. So I mentioned earlier where there's a, the long days, maybe toxic masculinity coming through sometimes. I think that's changing. I really do. I think people are now wanting a, a more balanced life. They, they want to, and, and we've got great people who work on exceptional projects and they love them and they really put their heart and soul into these things, which is great. And that's what you want. But that shouldn't come at the cost of maybe their family lives or their personal health. Or, or other things. So we need to find a way to balance that. And one of the things I think we need to do is make our industry more appealing. So by having a less combative culture, I think we can attract more people in. If you look at that against the backdrop of COVID-19 now, we're an industry that didn't stop. So we right now, we've we've had historically, a, a, I think, a, a brand issue. Right now, we've got a, a really strong selling point that if you want to have a sustainable career and you want to look after your family, your mortgage, or that working in the construction industry gives you a level of certainty. I think we need to play on that and actually really reinforce it, but do so with an improving culture. And one of the key things that we need to drive on that is around um, gender diversity, for example. Yeah. We're so underrepresented in our organisations and our organisation as one, but the industry uh, especially at the very senior level. So we can we can attract in graduates and new recruits at the young stages of their career, but we're struggling to retain them through and get people into senior leadership roles. And that's a big focus area for us right now as a, as a, as a business, but also as an industry. So we, we started off with that with our graduate recruitment. We've now got to a stage where we're 50-50 gender 
um, on our graduate recruitment, which was a, a massive shift from where probably five years ago we would have been 80-20. At the risk of being a little bit provocative here on that one, Cahill, how do you ensure that those numbers, which are great, turning at the graduate level, that we don't find the women all bunched up in traffic control and uh, not into the upper <laughs> echelons of uh, leadership? Yeah, so, so I think we're bringing our graduates, we are talking professionals and we're giving them exactly the same career opportunities at that early stage that plays out as the, the guy candidates as well. Okay, so that, that's the, but what we see is we're still not seeing that transition up. So the first thing we need is a few more leaders in those roles for people to aspire to. Over the last probably four years, uh, our executive committee here for our business in Australia we've actually moved to uh, 40% uh, representation female and 60% male, whereas historically we've been 100% male. Not, mm. not good, but it's what it was. But we've made, the, we've made changes now. And I think having those visible leaders up front really is key. I think then we've got to recognise some of the, the behavioural differences that play out and, again, naming it, recognising it, and then supporting it and coming up with strategies. So what do I mean by that? In my experience, um, some of our male colleagues are much more forthright. They'd be much more prepared to put their hand up for the next role where they may not quite be ready, whereas a lot of our female colleagues would wait until they're at least 100%, if not 120% ready for the next role. So what that means is we've got to take a bit more of an encouraging uh, role as a leadership team in terms of finding the right opportunities and supporting some of our really talented, capable female staff members to take those next steps. And that that just takes a bit of focus and a bit of, I guess, a bit more care to make sure that we do it and that they're successful in that. And I believe we start seeing them positive steps going forward where, you know, again, you see some of the engineers saying, okay, I can be that technical leader Mm. or I can be that project leader. And that's the, the step change we need. And I think then that starts driving a different set of conversations around what do our team want in their life? What's the balance they need to have between work and home? And what's the, the culture that plays out on our projects as well? It's really clear to me that you have a, you know, a real passion and focus on flexibility, on um, gender diversity. I know you've done a lot of work around pay equity, paid parental leave. Yeah. Um, yeah. Tell me about where that conviction that passion comes from and maybe some of the perhaps more unique strategies that you've put in place to advance those particular areas? Um, Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I I think it comes really from a a moral position that it's just, it's it's not right. Um, That's, I guess, the starting position. I've been very fortunate to always have very strong female leaders around me as I came up through my career as well. So my uh, my mentor for many years was a lady called Anna Stewart. She was our commercial director for a very long time in the group and then went on to become our group CEO. So from a capability perspective, I don't know if I've met any or definitely not many people who were as capable as she was in so I guess that's my starting point that I've had some great role models myself. Then I look at the the benefits of actually having a diverse team. And I've witnessed that around my own executive table where the the conversations, the perspectives and the the starting viewpoint is so different that it's really enriched the conversation and we've come up with better outcomes. That just makes absolute business sense to me. 
And then when I actually watch the engagements that some of my female leaders will have with their counterparty and clients, it's a very different outcome as well. It's less combative. It's less, uh, and it, I, this, I'm saying things like they're, they're, they're absolutely binary statements. This is a range, obviously. Mm. But uh, I have definitely witnessed that you can get to different outcomes by engaging in different ways. And often the female leaders tackle it from the get-go in a very different way that gets to a, a more successful outcome. So from a business perspective, I think, well, that's a that's an interesting observation. And it's something that if we can tap into, then we're going to have the bigger goal, which is a better culture in the industry. So that there's the things that drive me. And I guess it comes into the philosophy of collaboration being better than actually combative engagements. Um and the truth is it's actually harder to collaborate because you can't just hide away and defend. You've actually got to constantly come back to the conversation and find a way through. And we just have to be courageous enough to try things. And I'm hoping that possibly coming out of COVID, we can have that conversation. And I think the the scale of what we do when you're into hundreds of millions of dollars or billions of dollars, it gets a bit scary for people to take those big jumps. Mm. But what little micro experiments could we try? That's that's probably a a philosophy. It's one we use in the business ourselves. You know, when we're trying to work on people's uh, flex or energy, we say, well, what could you do differently? One thing that might improve that. And we let them try it. And once they try it, if it works, great, keep it. If it doesn't fail, fail fast, move on, try something else. And by having that experimentation culture, I think it could be a way that we could unlock some things that could add real benefit and they could be scaled across the whole of the uh, the business and the industry, merge from one to one to another. So just moving from diversity over to technology, you've been quite vocal about the need for the industry to look at new technology and be willing to try new ways of doing things. How have you been going about that at Langer Rock? Yeah, look, I, I think as an industry, it's not it's not a great uh, it's not a great uh, advert to be honest. Mm. But sometimes we are caught up in quite old practices and yet the appetite to look for new stuff is quite low and I think that that leaves us open to being disrupted so we're we're more keen to be at that front end ourselves to make sure we disrupt ourselves as opposed to it happening to us that's our I guess our philosophy but that's still challenging I think the biggest lean in for us is around you know our, our digital uh, technology. Let me start by design first and foremost. So, you know, traditionally design done on 2D drawings, and and even when you moved into CAD, it's a it's a digital form of a 2D drawing. Yeah. We've been big advocates for moving from that into digital modelling. So, we don't call it BIM, which is building information modelling. We call it uh, digital engineering. It's not just about buildings. It's about the any any uh, particular element you're working on. They can actually be designed, modelled in the model and what that's led us to do is be able to quantify things uh, very quickly we're doing a thing we're calling parametric uh, design modeling Um, and what that allows you to do is work on multiple scenarios really quickly and get to within a level of accuracy of plus or minus 10 percent a sense of what this is going to cost you and also the time to construct it now this might have taken a traditional design team uh, six to eight weeks to do, we can do that down in about a fortnight and come up with multiple options. So the benefit of, and, and that isn't Lang O'Rourke doing it, that's the whole team working in that collaborative, digital, immersive environment and using new tools. So you, you actually get to 
the better conceptual answer quicker. So you're saving time, you're able to move through, discount things, and end up on your primary uh, workflow a lot quicker. Then coming into how you actually manage projects, understand your productivity, what are the barriers that, that actually stop you being more productive? We, we're using a lot of uh, tracking and tracing and dashboards to actually do that. And they're now becoming automated, feeds into them being able to quantify again, able to price, and also being able to pay. So if you go to the um, Bushfires program, for example, we pitched in with a very clear digital dashboard. So at any given time, we'd know what projects are being worked on, what stage they're at on their on their process, and what value has been quantified for the teams being uh, employed to deliver it. And what that means is we could move to a payments schedule, which the industry traditionally works on maybe 30 days, mm-hmm. some cases 45, and in some some in some parts of the industry even worse. We were able to move to weekly payments. So again, a real critical driver for government that they wanted to get that money into the community to actually help the people who've been affected. And we could enable that by having that technology to play into it. And we, we sometimes find that with customers too, that they're not quite ready to take that step. And we've taken a philosophy, well, this is the way we work. So if that's the case, we will we will still carry on in our in the way we feel is best. Um, we'll fund that potentially. And we've had cases where we've shown the outworkings in a digital environment to our customers and they've come back to that actually, we might buy that back off you now, uh, now that we understand it. So maybe we need to get better at communicating and giving the narrative of what we're trying to achieve and selling the benefits. Because mm. once they see it, they really, really believe it and they get it. But it's hard to articulate when we've got a bit of a traditional mindset sitting behind it. I was, I mean, look, I was about to ask you, what is it that's holding the industry back? You've mentioned a couple of times in a couple of spheres that, that, that the, the industry is behind on things like flexibility and the use of technology. And I was wondering what it was. And do you think it, it's that point about not really being sold on the upside of it? not seeing enough examples, which is where you're trying to play, or are there other things there that you also think are the resistance to change factors? I, I, yeah, I, I definitely think the uh, we're, we're a very tangible industry. I mean, mm-hmm. if you look at what we do, a lot of people join construction and infrastructure because they can point and say, well, look, I did that. Yeah. Yeah, it's a very tangible Entity. So, so taking that leap of faith without the evidence, and mm. you know, we've an awful lot of engineers sitting in this business and in this industry. We like to know the facts and the evidence. So I think we need to be a bit more courageous about that in places. But I think we're probably not the best storytellers either. Mm. I think we have to be um, a bit bolder about our dreams and our visions and what what it could be, as opposed to just being consistently constrained by what it has been. Um, and I think if we can get a few more leaders being bold and putting out some some thoughts and some ideas, uh, and and then others can get behind that, I think it makes a big difference. Um, there's a, a, a lady, Alison Myram, she's the chief executive of Roberts Pizzarotti, um, and this is a relatively new company in our market, but actually they're looking at sort of how do we move the industry from a traditional six days a week industry to a five-day-a-week industry and protecting the yep. weekends so people can get more balance. And fair play, Alison's been really articulate about that. She's doubled down and actually put in tenders where they give clients two options. And again, she's given them a narrative and a story that's allowed them to to then weigh that up. And, and in fairness to the clients, they've chosen to go with it. Um, 
Now that that's we need a bit more of that. I think people actually daring to dream, articulating what it can be, and then finding a way to uh, implement that into a into a real life situation. Once we have that, and a few places see it work, guess what? People are very smart in the industry. They're going to follow where they see benefit. And I, I'm a, I'm a huge believer that once people see the good stuff, they're going to take it on board. And what are we excellent at in this industry is implementation. Mm. So once it's been established, I think we'll adopt really quickly. As we saw during our, our our individual COVID journey, we went from not doing much flex to being incredibly good at flex. Oh, that's fantastic. I love that response. I'm going to change tack now and get onto something uh, that I'll put a disclaimer right up front. I am obsessed with the series Succession. Um, and so I'm going to ask you about your family business. <laughs> um, and I'm, I'm not in any way suggesting that you are anything like the succession family, but a family business can clearly bring some challenges. It can also have some um, many positives. Your yep. dad is Ray O'Rourke. He's the chairman and CEO, runs the company along with his brother or your uncle um, and your uncle, right. say, not all, uh, Des. Um, and I believe they founded the original R.O. Rourke and Son back in, or Ray O'Rourke and Son back in 1977. So the business has gone through a number of twists and turns and permutations over five decades. There's got to be a truckload of stories in there, I'm sure, all of which I'd love to unpack but not going to. Tell me, what is it like to work in a business which bears your surname? Uh, it's a huge uh, privilege and an honour, in truth, but it comes with a bit of a, a bit of responsibility that you want that that association, which is our family, uh, in, in effect, to be associated with good things, not not negative things. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, the, the business started in 77, R.O. and Son. So it's, I, that I was the son in R.O. Rourke & Son, and now I don't even get a credit. I'm just a <laughs> part of the broader I did group. wonder. I was like, why don't you just call him out? <laughs> and son, the un- <laughs> unnamed son. Uh, my, my sisters weren't too happy about that. They should, mm. probably should have been Ira Rourke and son, son and daughters, but um, it's moved on to, to Langer Rourke. And um, I, I think working in a in a family business, and I'll, I'll take you back. So when I when I left university, I'm an engineer by training. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I left university, uh, it was when Ira Rourke and Son were operating, and our business was a very different scale to what it is today. When I left uni, I, I wanted to go out and get my own job. So, uh, so with a view that you would eventually go into it or like, oh, no way, I'm not going to be the son in this picture? I think naively I, I thought I'd be able to strike out on my own. And I, I, I think if I look back on it now, I think there's a sense of inevitability of giving it a go. <laughs> but uh, at, at 21, 22, I, I thought I knew better. I, I went to work for part of the Ford Motor Company, actually, as a, a financial analyst. and. Mm-hmm. I still look back on those times and I, I, I learned some interesting lessons through my time in that in that organization. Um, some that I didn't realize until much later on, but I used to sit at the desk, which was right by the front door, and a senior manager, the general manager for the division, used to come in every day, walk past and never used to say hello to anyone. Mm. And I can't honestly remember feeling upset about that at the time. I just thought that was normal. But I know now I would never do that. I walk into our office and I would always greet people and say good morning and uh, I think that's just a, a nice human characteristic that I think is a, is a, a good leadership trait and well just a human trait as mm. you mind leadership then at the time the, the division I was working at was a company called Visteon which was Ford's parts division that they had separated out made a separate company 
but it was wholly owned and worked predominantly for Ford with a few other car manufacturers they were trying to engage with. And the way that company operated was people would move between Ford and Visti on it. was just like a rotation and a cycle. We just did that as part of your career journey. In the six months I was with them, they actually moved that from being a two-way door where you'd move backwards and forwards into a one-way door where if you moved into Vistion, you couldn't get back into Ford. Mm -hmm. For people, and the, the culture aligned working with Ford was, you know, you were a Ford person. You know, it was, it was, it was pretty much all-encompassing. All and for them to then be left effectively cut adrift into this other vehicle just because they happened to be there on that cycle, that felt quite tough. Mm -hmm. And then to compound it... <laughs> was that the, uh, the the general manager, she actually gave the news that this was happening. There was no way back. But just before that door shut, she, she was moving back into Ford. And <laughs> That's a bit handy again, for her. It, yeah, and, and it, it's interesting because I, I didn't realise the impact that had on me, but I guess the, the thing that sat in my mind was, you know, rats leaving a sinking ship. And unfortunately, mm -hmm. that company didn't survive once it became a separate entity. And I always think about the consequences that I had on people. So I was in there as a temporary employee. I got great feedback and I I asked for, a, as, as most people do, I asked for a bit of development and a bit of a pay rise and a permanent job. And I was great with, oh, we'd love to, you're doing well, but we got a recruitment free. So that led me to then start looking at other opportunities. And at the same time, as I looked out into other businesses, our business won a, a, what were, at the time was a major project for us, which was the uh, Citigroup Tower in Canary Wharf in London. Yeah. And uh, I remember my father saying to me, right, come on, now or never, son, give it a go. And I thought, okay, I'm leaving one business because I'm not getting opportunity. The one thing I will get in a family business is opportunity. So I said, okay, I'll give it a go. I'll give it a year. And here I am 20, 21 years later, on the other side of the world, running my own portion of our business, yeah. uh, which is much larger than the business I joined. So it's been a, a very exciting and diverse career that I've been able to have inside of our family business. But the things that I take away from the early years are that people have choices. I had choices. And when I wasn't being met on the road in terms of my opportunities, I voted with my feet and I left. Mm. So we bring that culture into our business, all that thinking into our business and our culture, I should say. You know, we look to do, we're quite heavy on people development. We invest a lot into our teams and our people. And that's about them choosing to spend their careers in our organization. So we have to make that exciting. We have to give them opportunities and there has to be growth. And, you know, this is their career and they're choosing to spend it with us. So let's make it the best it can be. So I think that's a, a really strong characteristic of our culture is our people. Mm. And I, I think you see more of that inside of a, a private business than I assume, and I've never worked for a big PLC company even mm. in our sector, So, uh, other than the Ford experience, which is quite limited. So I, I think that's one of the characteristics that being in a private business affords you in terms of being... <laughs> Uh, the benefits of it from being a family member in an organization. I remember this from when I was a lot younger and still living at home but working in the business. I'd hear, or even on the Sunday Sunday lunch table, you'd hear the impetus and the thought process that were going behind what the senior leaders were trying to do. Senior then leaders being dad? It. Or dad and, and the executive. <laughs> and uncle yeah, does. He, he, he was leading. Yeah, they were yeah. leading. But then you'd see it filter back down through the organization and it was quite fascinating how it had morphed into something not quite what was 
meaning to be done. Mm. Um, that sits quite highly in my mind, and yeah. that's why I think in our business we we try to do a lot of direct communication as well. Yeah, it's fascinating. So that you actually get the the and the channels where you can converse with people directly, and you can have an unfiltered message. You can explain what you're trying to do. How do you ensure that? that you honour the, the legacy and the history of the previous generation and still create change respectfully and leave your own mark uh, in a family business? Um, yeah, that's a great question. Um, I, I think you always respect what's gone before. I mean, you know, this is this is my, my dad, my uncle and all the people that they worked with. They, they were our leaders um, for many years many years all my time in the business so you've got a huge amount of respect <clears throat> but that doesn't mean you can't suggest things and I think the the approach I've been taking which has got some traction for me is is, is again communicating being very clear about where you might have a different view um, but I, t- I tend to do that in a, in a one-on-one setting um, now the majority of the time we're very aligned which is great so that makes it quite easy but when there are different perspectives or things, I try to uh, frame up what, what I'm thinking, why I'm thinking it. And to my father's credit, he's a great listener. Mm. Um, so while he might not like a, an alternate perspective at one particular point, he'll always consider it mm. and will always come back around. So what you, what you, what I would say you mustn't do in a family business is let the emotional stuff play, which is so much more easy. When it's a when it's a family conversation, because if you're critiquing or challenging, that can be intended as a as a professional view, but it can be received as a personal comment. Yeah, so mm. that that's the mm. that's the danger zone. So you have to make sure you step out of that. And I I couldn't sit here and pretend to you that I've done that incredibly well all the time, but as I've got um, a bit bit more experience than a bit older. Um, making sure you have considered thought time, give your message in a clear way, which is less threatening um, than the emotional way it can be. As a younger, as a younger gentleman, I probably was a bit more hot-headed, and I'd share things in, in the moment. Mm. So I think taking those lessons, because the worst thing for me, and I, I love the business and I love what I get to do, but I love my family more. Mm. Um, so at no point do I want the business to be a uh, a point that creates conflict that damages my more important relationship. And it doesn't have to be, but you've just got to be quite conscious of it. What are you most proud of, Kyle? If you're asking me that holistically, I'm most proud of our business as a, as a whole. I hope and I believe we're a great place for people to work. Now, we're not perfect. I'm sure there'll be pockets where we could be do better, but I think there's always a, a great intent and we're always trying to do good work and do better things. Uh, for me, myself, I'm 11 years in Australia, as I said. I came for three, and I've managed to um, grow my career and develop a, a really exceptional business here as well. That isn't me alone by any stretch. I've got an incredible team of executives here locally, mm. and I get huge support from the group. But we're still allowed a, a fair amount of latitude. And I'm very proud of the business we have here Fantastic. and uh, the, the efforts I've put into that as well. The last three, three fast questions on change to finish the podcast. I'm going to finish with a light, fast three questions for you. What is a misconception that most people have about you? Good question. Uh, I, I think there's a, 
the outward perception of of confidence. I am confident, but we all have our little insecurities mm-hmm. at times. So, and it's nice to have people to to give you a nudge in the right direction. So, no, you're doing the right thing. Very good. What's one guilty pleasure? Oh, I love a, a, a beautiful drop of uh, Barossa Red mm, would probably be very nice. The, the worst thing, or chocolate. Chocolate's probably my my real undoing. So, uh, but I'm on a I'm three weeks into a detox, so I haven't had any for a while. Oh, goodness me. And what's one thing you're hopeless at? Staying off chocolate? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Actually, um, I wish I was more creative. Yeah, I think that's that, that's the point. I'm a great energizer of ideas, but mm. I sometimes struggle to come up with the, the concept. So that's why it's important that I have the team around me because they'll, they'll come up with a great idea and I'll just come in right behind it and put a lot of energy into it. Very good. Thank you, Cahill. I wanted to say a big thank you for your insights today. I I really loved a number of your messages. You talked a lot about collaboration and collaboration being a choice. And I think we've seen that things like bushfires, things like COVID have taken away a number of the barriers to collaborating and we've seen we can get far better outcomes. But as you say, it is a choice for something we need to be consciously working on and towards. Uh, And then we can um, more systemically drive those better outcomes by working in that way. I love the stories that you've peppered throughout this conversation. It really shows your connectedness to your work uh, and to the impact that your work brings to staff and communities. Um, And there was a sentence that you said that will stay with me, um, that is that we have to be bolder about our dreams and ambitions and think about what it could be rather than what it has been. And I think that's yeah. a beautiful way to summarise where uh, not just the industry but the world needs to be going when it comes to change. So thank you so much for your time. No, thank you for having me. I've enjoyed it. The Change Happens podcast from EY, a conversation on leading through change. Discover more where you get your podcasts.